Well, good morning. My name is Andrew Woods, like you've heard, and it is my distinct pleasure to be bringing the word of the Lord to you this morning. So in doing so, would you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5? This morning we will be in verses 43 through 48, so we're kind of jumping down to the end of what Christ is going, you have heard it said, but now I say to you. And as you're opening your Bibles to that area, uh, I want to remind you of a popular saying, something I'm sure you've heard again and again and again, like father, like son. And this morning, it's this isn't a new revelation to you. All of us in this room have had a father, whether he was a part of our lives or not. And regardless of our relationship with our father, we tend to emulate them or imitate them in certain ways, whether that be in our speech, in our actions, or even in our appearance. And this morning, we are going to learn from Christ what it means to be a child of God and how we are to emulate and imitate our Heavenly Father. So let's go to the Word of God this morning. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Hear the word of God for you this morning. Now, as we begin, I'd like to just start in a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the scripture. O God, our God. How majestic is your name in all the earth. As we have just read your word, we pray this morning that you would use this word to sanctify our hearts. We pray as we work through your all-sufficient, inerrant word, that we would be built up into holiness. An act that only you can do on our behalf as we strive, but we do it in the work of the Spirit. So, Father, I pray the words this morning that we, or that I say, and that go out to your people, that it would be an encouragement, that it may be an admonishment, that it may even be a rebuke. But would you use it to your glory, we pray. Amen. So this morning, as we jump into uh, this this grouping uh, of Scripture, I just want to remind you of the context, since I'm assuming you haven't been working through Matthew chapter 5 exegetically. We're kind of just jumping into a few verses, and I want to remind you that this is the Sermon on the Mount. And so Christ is, is on a hill, and in front of Christ are going to be his disciples. And then outside of that is going to be just a group of Jewish people who are longing to hear what this new rabbi has to say about the scripture. And so they are sitting down, and they are going through one really long sermon. 
And as they're going through this long sermon, what Christ has been doing has been drawing their attention to different sayings, different teachings that have been said for this Jewish community. And he will say, you have heard it said. And what he'll typically do is go to an Old Testament scripture and unpack it and give it its true understanding or meaning. And Christ being the word of God uh, is able to then decipher what the meaning of the word is, even in the Old Testament for these Jewish people who are listening. And so if you go back and, and starting in verse 21, we see that he walks through different, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And what you will realize is that most of this is Old Testament scripture. But then we get to the verse that we're in this morning. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, Jesus is quoting something here, but the reality is he's not quoting the Old Testament. Gasp, right? What What is he quoting then? He was quoting the Old Testament before. Well, it's kind of a mix. He's quoting the Old Testament and you have heard it was said. So he's talking about different teachings that have been put together by this Jewish community. This wouldn't have been out of, kind of out of bounds for them. They would have heard this teaching before. And so I had our dear brother right here read for us Leviticus chapter 19 verses 1 all the way through 18. And I promise I didn't do that just for torture. I did that for a reason. And in verse 18, we heard him read this. You shall not take vengeance... Or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now all of us can get behind this statement, right? And, and even what we've read. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There's, there's partial reality here. That you would love your neighbor. Don't bear a grudge against their sons. Love your neighbor as yourself. But then Christ takes it to a different level when he says, and hate your enemy, right? He's quoting this teaching. Well, well, what is he talking about? Well, if you were to look in the book of Psalms, you would hear these Psalms called imprecatory Psalms. Have you guys heard those before? I'm sure you've probably even heard them taught here uh, from this pulpit. And we know these imprecatory Psalms are calling for the justice of God, the wrath of God to be poured out on the enemies of God. And and that's an okay thing to pray. It's in the Bible. God gave it to us to do such a thing. And so we can even look to a psalm that we know, like Psalm 139, right? That psalm that we, we, we always go back to to think about how God knit us together in our mother's wombs. But maybe what we don't remember so clearly from that psalm is verses 21 and 22, which say, Do I not hate those who hate you? O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So we can see that certainly there's Old Testament teaching about hating enemies in the proper context. There is an understanding from this Jewish audience then, and they've probably heard it said, And commentators have said this was a kind of a normal Jewish teaching that you would love your neighbor and that you would hate your enemy. So there's kind of this populist movement going ahead, pushing forward and saying, this is how you should act. This is how you should be as a good Jewish person. And of course, our Savior has something else to say about that. 
He comments then, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Now, what you see in this verse, right? You're going to love your enemies. You're going to pray for those who persecute you. Those are two commands of scripture. They're two commands of Jesus Christ. They're imperatives. Now, if I were just to stay here and give you a whole sermon on why it's important for you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, I'd give you a very good moralistic, legalistic sermon. And I'm sure you could grow from that. But what I want to draw your attention to is the sentence it finds itself in. The context of what it finds itself in is so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. We can't talk about the two commandments until we talk about this. Because the reality is these two commandments, yes, they're a command for you if you are believers in Christ. But only so if you are believers in Christ. This is actually, these two imperatives do something. They prove to others of an action that's already been done in your heart. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Okay, I just wanted to ground it in that reality before we jumped into these two imperatives. Because I didn't want to give you the wrong idea. I don't want you to think after we just sung that it's not about our own merit. That somehow we could merit ourselves by loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. So let's jump in now to these two imperatives. But I say, love your enemies. You might be thinking, okay, I get the love part. Or at least I hope you do. But you might be thinking, but I don't really understand the enemies part. Here in Graham, I I don't have too many enemies that are coming after me, right? I I don't have people that are, you know, I'm not like thinking of Ukraine and Russia. We're not feeling that same same type of thing is what I'm trying to say. But if you read this in the Greek and you unpack what an enemy is, it's actually a pretty broad understanding of what an enemy is. It is someone who opposes you or is hostile towards you. Now, I think all of us in this room could say, yeah, I know a person or two that opposes me or that is hostile towards me. Well, great. Then this morning, the sermon is for you, that you are to love those who oppose you Or are hostile to you. And now I think what's so interesting. Is that this is maybe one of the hardest things to do. As Christians. To love your enemies. Yet it's also the thing that we should cherish the most. Now why would I say that? Again God's providence. We were already in Romans chapter 5. And we're going to go back. So flip in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 6, and I'll go through verse 10. And in this, we're going to see an example of our own Savior and how he has loved his enemies. Starting in verse 6 of chapter 5 of Romans. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps... For a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now we are, that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Amen. Praise be to God. We see an example of our Savior about what it means to love your enemies. That he would actually give up his life for those who came to kill him. And for those he came to save. I think another place to look for us to get a a good, helpful understanding of what it means to love your enemy. I, I don't want to keep it ethereal, right? I want to help you understand what does it mean to love your enemy. Luke chapter 6 starting in verse 27, gives us a very good parallel verse. And this is what the Gospel of Luke, Christ says to us in these verses. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Here's how. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. Those are hard realities to hear. That we would do good to people Who hate us. Okay? Again, maybe you're like, okay, I get it. But when you guys really think about it, who are your enemies? Who are the people who oppose you or or who are hostile to you? Now, you might not be able to say that in front of all of these people, but I gather if I jumped onto your social media, I could find out real quick who your enemies are or who you think are the people who oppose you. See, we tend to tribalize into these groups and then we end up not wanting to deal with these other people who may legitimately be opposing us and hostile to us. But Christ shows that we opposed him and that we were hostile to him in every way and he came to do good for our souls. One example out of history, because that's always fun. Loving looks like doing good to those who oppose you and are hostile to you. I'm sure we have some history buffs in here. Have you ever heard of the Christmas truce? In 1914, during World War I, there was a Christmas truce between the Germans and the British. The craziest thing you could ever think of. These men, moments ago, were killing each other. And then, what did they do? On Christmas... Celebrating Christ, which both of these groups of men were doing, they decided to let wounded men be brought back over to the other side. They decided to come together and sing hymns of Christ. Together. They actually exchanged gifts. These were men that were killing each other. And then, but a day later, went back to killing each other. But in that moment, they did good to their enemies. That is a helpful unpacking of what it looks like to do good to your enemies. Now, another way I want us to to be reminded of how do we do good or how do we love those who are our enemies, I'm actually going to cheat and use the next imperative and say the other way that we love our enemies is by praying for them. And this is the second command of Christ. I don't know if you've done this before, but when you continue to place someone you would consider your enemy, someone who opposes you or is hostile to you before the throne of God, bringing him or her to the throne of grace over and over and over again, it's hard not to start to love this person. Now, what should you pray for? Well, I think that The thing you should be praying for this person for is not that um, they would stop opposing you or being hostile to you. That's fine. 
but that you would pray that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, repenting of their sins and following Christ for the rest of their lives. You could pray, obviously, for the other things, but this should be the main thrust of your prayer. Why? Well, because we follow the example of our Savior. As Christ came to love his enemies and do good to those who were his enemies and who were openly hostile to him and opposing him, Christ also prayed for his enemies. Do you remember Christ on the cross? What did Christ do as he was being crucified on the cross? What did he pray to his father? Father, forgive them. Amen, sister. Forgive them for they they do not know what they're doing. John Stott is a wonderful apologist. And he stated this. If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? So we see that these two actions, these two commands, will prove to the world that you are sons and daughters of your heavenly Father. If you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, you prove to be sons of your heavenly Father. Friends, this is actually the purpose of this little pericope. It's this right here. That if we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, we will be proven to be sons and daughters of our heavenly Father. And what is this describing? It's describing a new person with a new heart under a new covenant. Only someone who's been radically transformed by the power of the gospel. Receiving the grace of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the pardon of the wrath of God that we deserved because of our sin. Being given a perfect righteousness could be able to love and pray for their enemies. This, of course, is the point as followers of Christ. Remember what I said, like father, like son. If you are followers of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we emulate and imitate our Savior as He and His Heavenly Father are one, proving that we are sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. Now, just to pour on more examples, Christ gives us another one from our Heavenly Father. Continuing in verse 45, He says, For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This is what theologians call common grace. Meaning that God doesn't just send rain on those who are good and just and followers of Jesus Christ. No, God sends rain for all. God doesn't just bring the scorching heat of Texas on the unbelievers. He brings it on the believers as well, right? He he brings, I say scorching heat, but it does help plants grow, right? It, It keeps us warm, maybe more warmer than we are hoping for. But this is God's common grace. It's not his specific salvific grace that he gives only to his sons and daughters. It is the one that is for everyone. If God gives this grace even to his enemies, how should we emulate and imitate our father? Now, Christ continues and he does something really interesting in verses 46 
and, or I'm sorry, yeah, in 46 and in 47, he gives two examples that would blow the minds of the people that were all seated around him. Remember, these are very Jewish people. They are very holy. They feel like they're so set apart. We're going to spend all day and listen to this rabbi on the side of the hill as he preaches to us. And so what does Jesus do? He goes directly for their hearts. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Now, I can imagine, I wasn't there obviously, but I can imagine there being quite a gasp at this statement. What did Jesus just do in this example? Jesus picked out one of the most hated people for this group of Jewish believers. He said, if only you love other people who love you, then you are like the people you hate the most, which are the tax collectors. Now, why? Again, I've heard, I know you've heard it said, but maybe for others who have never heard this before, tax collectors were so brutal to their own people because they were working for Rome to collect taxes for Rome. So they would go in and amongst their own people and collect taxes, except for the fact that Rome said, you can take more on top of that for yourself. And so these Jewish men would go in, they would collect taxes from a poor people, and then they would gain even more wealth for themselves and live kind of a set-apart life of luxury while their fellow Jews were living in poverty. These people were looked at with such rancor within their own tribe of people. They disgusted them. And what does Jesus say? If you only love your neighbor and hate your enemy, you're no better than the tax collector. And not only that, but Christ does something really cool here. He gives us two things. He gives us one. Hey, listen, if you don't love like I'm calling you to love, which is your enemies, you're no better than the tax collector. And then he actually gives them an example of a person to love. Not only am I calling you to have more love than someone like a tax collector, but I'm calling you to go and love the tax collector. The second group he talks about are the Gentiles. The Gentiles who were this unclean people. The people who didn't have the law of God. And so the Jews quite literally separated themselves from the Gentiles. They couldn't have association with them. They couldn't do things with them that would make them ceremonially unclean. In fact, Gentiles, even if they came to know God and be God-fearing Gentiles, they weren't even let into the temple. They had their own courtyard to be separated because they just weren't exactly the people of God. At least that's what they thought. And so then what Jesus says, if you only greet each other, Right In these public spaces, if you're only going after the people that you know are like you, isn't that exactly what the Gentiles do? Again, like gasp, landing on them. As Jesus continues to go for their heart. And so he says, if you only do it like this, you're no better than them. You're just like a Gentile. And then on the same flip side of the coin... So go love and pray for these Gentiles. So before I go into verse 48, I I would be remiss not to ask you this question. Who are your tax collectors and Gentiles? 
As you hear this word, which has been preserved for you this morning, for you to hear, who are the people that you would say, absolutely not, not that person. I'd never pray for them or I'd never do something good for them. I can take a guess. I can think of the other political party that you might not be represented with, especially as we start getting into a political season. Are you praying for them? Are you praying for their candidates? Are you loving them, doing good for them? That doesn't mean that you don't hold to truth. Don't hear me say that I come up here and say, well, you should just forget about truth. I just love a man. I I know I'm going to California, but I'm not that hippie yet. Okay? But you better be praying for them. And you better be thinking of ways to do good to these people. Because that's what proves that you are sons and daughters of the Most High. Not that you stay in a little tribe and you get all angry. Because you can believe, thank you son, that's right, no, don't do that. Because you can believe or you can bet that's what's going to happen here in a couple of months. Alright, let's jump into the last verse. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What? I don't know if you read this and say what, but as I was studying it, I did. Wait a minute. We just sang about all these things. We, we even read some scripture and talked about how we can't be perfect. And now Jesus is saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What is happening here? Now, maybe you're expecting me to do some Greek gymnastics and tell you the word in Greek for perfect doesn't mean perfect. It means kind of perfect or uh, just really wanting to be perfect. And I got to tell you something. I looked in the Greek. Do you know what the perfect word means in Greek? Perfect. Okay, not only perfect, but it would actually be something of a perfect sacrifice, right? So something without spot or blemish, something that would be so good. So you, therefore, friends, hear the word of Christ for you this morning. You must be perfect. Now, I don't know about you, but that can put a bit of a burden on my shoulders as I read that. Whoa, I don't think I can be perfect. And I gotta, I gotta confess to you, I was confessing sins right there in that seat as our brother was leading us in a prayer of confession. I am not perfect. And I read these words and I start sweating on my bald head and you see it really quick. Because I'm not that guy. So how do we understand this then? How do we understand the perfect word of God? How do we understand that? Well, I want to point you to the context of what we're reading. And in fact, if you just go in this same sermon of Christ into your next chapter, chapter 6, what does Christ do? He teaches people how to pray. And this is really interesting. Because as Christ teaches people how to pray, we specifically come to verse 12 of chapter 6. And we read, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Maybe as you guys memorize this verse, you may have said something and forgive us our transgressions. As we also forgive those who transgress against us. Something in that, in one of the versions that you may have this morning. Well, what is that talking about? That's talking about sin. So Christ right here in Matthew 5, at the end um, of Matthew 5, talks to us about being perfect. And then in Matthew chapter 6, he teaches people how to pray, specifically helping them realize that they'll what? They'll sin. 
So they need to be forgiven. Okay, that's our first clue to say, maybe we're not interpreting this right. As the sweat was rolling down my head as I studied it, do I really have to be perfect? I'm feeling a little scared here about that. Okay, Christ is is allowing us to seek forgiveness of our sins. Maybe I'm not understanding this right. So I'm going to do some Greek here, but I promise it won't be gymnastics. It's going to be really clear and really to the point. You, therefore, must be. That word be, right? How are we to be? What's our being? What are we doing? Well, that word be is actually in the future tense. Oh. So this is actually pointing towards a future reality. You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's not the here and now. And I'll I'll give you a hint. It won't happen in this life. But we are... As we read Leviticus 19, thank you, brother, for reading it. In chapter 1, we are called to be holy as our Father in heaven is holy. So we realize that the call of our life is holiness, being set apart, growing in our sanctification. This is what all Christians are called to. Do you know what the will of God is in your life? It's your sanctification. Go to First Thessalonians. It's one of those great places when people, maybe young people are asking, what's the will of God in my life? I just don't know what I'm supposed to do. And that's my favorite thing to be like, actually, it's just to be sanctified. Go to the college you want to go to. Marry the person you want to marry. But be holy and grow in holiness. Leon Morris is a commentator on the New Testament and especially on Matthew. And he says this, To set this kind of perfection before his followers means that Jesus saw them as always having something for which to strive. No matter how far along the path of Christian service we are, there is still something to aim for. There is a wholeheartedness about being Christian. All that we have and all that we are must be taken up into the service of the Father. So as we understand this growth, this moving towards, but never actually fulfilling it until glorification, we see that in the context of our verses, 43 through 48, this being perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect is pointing us to grow in our love of our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. And in so doing, proving that we are sons and daughters of our heavenly father. So as we kind of move to our conclusion here, let me ask you again, when people say like father, like son, who are they thinking your father is? Who would they say, you must be a child of, how are they going to finish that sentence? Now, as we thought about this idea of perfection, this perfect, spotless perfection that we're called to, I want to just add more burden to your shoulders this morning. As any good preacher would. As we began, I I told you that we are in this section of, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And right before that starts, we get this crazy verse in, in chapter 5, verse 20. It says, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, 
you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, friends, I I just want to put out there that this is a true statement. This righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees, who are like the most holy people you can imagine. The most set apart people. If your holiness does not, or your righteousness does not exceed theirs, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, no. And really, if you think about the context of who is hearing this, they were saying, oh, no, as well. All of these people sitting around going, oh, wait, I'm not like those guys. There's no way I can be like them. I do not have their righteousness. So we end with this idea of righteousness and perfection. Let me ask you a question. How are you stacking up? Some of you need to feel that this morning. Because some of you need to realize that you aren't perfect. In fact, your sins have made you far from it. This morning you realize that when you look at yourself, you don't see that faith that emulates and imitates the Father that is in heaven. In fact, you emulate and imitate the world. You're hostile. You're hateful. You have enmity towards all different types of people. And I want you to hear this morning that your sin is condemning you. And not only will you not enter the kingdom of heaven but you will receive the wrath of God in judgment for eternity if you cannot be perfect. Now that's a lot of burden to throw on your shoulders. But remember what I already read to you in Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if you feel this burden, if you feel this weight, I would remind you of what our dear brother read As we continued on in chapter 5, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning, was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Hear the gospel this morning. Repent of your many sins. You will never be perfect. You will never have enough righteousness. Place your faith in the one who came while you were enemies, while you are weak. Place your faith in him who has the perfect righteousness. The one who is sitting now, even at the right hand of God, ready 
in session, ready to mediate on your behalf because of your sin. So if you are not a believer in Christ this morning, here's your charge. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But if you are in Christ, if you are saying, yes, I am a believer, I I am a son or daughter of my heavenly Father, I would ask you, are you loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you? Even as you feel that burden, know that when you don't do that perfectly, you have a perfect mediator. You have a perfect Savior, full of righteousness on your behalf. So go to Him, bring your burdens to Him. He will never leave you or forsake you, and He will help you in what you are called to do. Let's pray. O God, our God, we come to You this morning after hearing Your Word, knowing that we can never be perfect, but praise be to You that You sent Your one and only Son. That whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. We would essentially get his righteousness as he took our sinfulness. Your wrath poured on him so it wouldn't have to pour on us. And that we could be sons and daughters of you. Father, I pray for these precious saints here at Redeemer Church. I pray for these precious saints that they would be such an example to the world around them. That the world would know that they are your disciples by the love that is poured out of them. The love that is poured out even as they are persecuted by this culture and its ideology, that they would still love those who are a part of that culture. And even as people persecute them by trying to to change truth and redefine things, that they would pray for them. That they would pray that they would come to know the one true God and their Savior in Christ and their Comforter in their Holy Spirit. Lord, only you can do this work in all of our hearts. I pray that you would do it this day. In Christ's name, amen.